I'm Hannah Riley Bold. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, where we are um, dedicated to closing gaps in uh, gender gaps in economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. Um, I am delighted to uh, introduce our speaker um, for today, uh, Jane Waldfogel, who is the professor of is professor of social work and public affairs at Columbia University. Uh, Jane actually is an alumna of the Kennedy School coming out of the um, doctoral uh, program here. I had, um, uh, I've actually was originally introduced to Jane through her very important work um, demonstrating the maternal penalty on uh, wages, basically demonstrating that once you control for a whole variety of factors, it actually, um, children have a systematic effect on women's earnings, which is really, it was very important stuff that subsequently got picked up by other people. I think you were really one of the first voices um, demonstrating those effects. And um, today, uh, uh, Professor Waldfogel is gonna talk to us about, we were sort of debating what should we give, and she's gonna give us a kind of broad perspective on work family policy in the US. And I understand the next direction that she's heading in is really looking at education policy in the school and the, the classroom. So we are just so thrilled to have you here and. Uh, lest I take any more time away from you. <laughs> I'm going to sit down. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for the nice introduction, and thank you, everyone, for being here. It's great to have such a big turnout and um, such a diverse turnout. Uh, I have a lot of questions embedded in this talk, so that's why I'm happy to see so many people here, because uh, I really need your help in, in thinking about these issues. Uh, and also, it's just it's great to be back in this building and back at the Kennedy School. So I got my PhD here 20 years ago. Mary Jo Bain was my advisor. And the work that you were just talking about, about the family gap in pay, was my dissertation. So um, you know, those of you who are students, plug away at what you're doing, because it'll turn out to be important work. And um, it, it'll, uh, it'll be of interest to you for some time. So I'm going to talk today about work family policy in the United States, uh, something that I do a lot of work on. And it's great to have a chance to do a sort of overview talk for you. So I'm going to talk about what the challenge is today. I'm going to talk about the current status of work family policy. And then I'm going to talk about where we go from here. And this is where we go from here is where you'll see a lot of question marks on the slides, because there are really some questions that I want to put out for discussion. So the challenge really comes from these two important demographic shifts. And the first of these has to do with more children now having working parents. And if I put up this graph, you'll see immediately what I mean. So this graph is from a paper that we published in Demography a few years ago. And um, at the start of the time series in 1967, 64% of children, uh, families with children, have at least one parent home full time. So that's the classic stay-at-home mom. It's the kind of family that I grew up in. And a minority, about a third of families with children, had all the parents working in the labor market, either because it's a two-parent family with both working or a single-parent family with the mom working. You can see there's a crossover point in the 1970s, and then we get to today where it's the picture is completely reversed. And now two-thirds of kids have all their parents working in the labor market, and only a third of kids have a parent who's home full-time. Now, partly this is the increase in single-parent families who have always been more likely to be employed, but actually mostly it's just the increase in mother's employment. Seventy percent or more of mothers are working, whether they're <coughs> married moms or single moms, and this is just very different from what it was in the past. And they're working early. You know, two-thirds of the moms are back at work 
within the first year after a child is born. Uh, so this is just a complete reversal, and I, I based a whole book about this called What Children Need, kind of making the case for work family policy just on the basis of what children need. You know, if we care about our kids, we have to take into account that most kids now have all their parents in the labor market. So the things that we always counted on a stay-at-home mom to do, we can't count on those moms doing anymore. Uh, so that's, that's the first demographic challenge. Um, and just to say that, you know, this is for all families. There's some lines that break it up by family structure. There's a more nuanced story to be told in terms of income versus high-income and low-income families. Uh, you have this increasing dichotomy where the high-income families, they're working very long hours, both partners, and so there's this real time squeeze, but they've got lots of income to go around at the top. The low-income families, they've got uncertain hours, often not enough hours to go around, and so much more of a squeeze and not enough income to go around. Uh, and then you have the families in the middle who are pretty squeezed as well. Um, so that's the increase in maternal workforce participation, so more kids now have working moms. Of course, the other big demographic shift is that more workers now have responsibility for elders or someone else, uh, some other kind of dependent. Uh, in the latest nationally representative survey of American workers, one-sixth of workers said they were currently caring for an elderly relative. Half of workers said they had cared for an elderly relative in the past five years. So this is now getting to be normative. Uh, so this is the other big demographic change. And, you know, it's, it's I suppose it's good news. Uh, people are living longer. This is a good thing. Um, you know, we've had this big increase in longevity. Uh, but it does mean that the elderly as a percent of our population are going up an awful lot. Uh, back in 1900, the elderly made up 4% of our population. By 1960, that was getting close to 10%. Now it's about 15%. By 2040, we're projecting it's going to be 20%. Uh, so there's just a lot more elderly among us. And people are not only living longer, but they're living older. So there's more elderly as a share, but also more older elderly. Um, so there used to be 1% of people, uh, 75 to 44, that's now about 5%. And the 85 plus, which used to hardly exist, is now, you know, it's 2% and it's heading towards 3.5%. Uh, that matters because as people get older, they need more care. Um, so if we think about dependency ratios, so dependency ratios are um, how many of the dependent group uh, do we have per uh, 100 workers, uh, we used to have about 20 elderly per 100 working age folks in our society. We're now moving up towards uh, projecting 36 elderly for every 100 workers by 2050. So that has implications in terms of, you know, financing things like Social Security and Medicare, but also just in terms of what percent of the workforce is going to have an elder care responsibility. Children actually are pretty constant. So you can see the overall dependency ratio is going up very quickly, but that's being driven by the elderly. And as I mentioned before, the older the elderly get, the more likely they are to need, need care. So the good news is we are living longer and living healthier. I mean, people say 60 is the new 50, 70 is the new 60. These are numbers that I'm very happy to hear. Um, but, you know, as I'm part of the baby boom myself. But at some point, you know, people are living longer, but at some point people start becoming frail and start needing some help. So by 75 to 79, about a fifth of people need some help, then it moves to a third, 
And that group that used to be just a trace of the population, the 85 plus, half of those are going to need some help. Uh, so that's that's the story in the elderly. And it's, the elderly are tough because it's not it's not just acute care; it's also ongoing help. So um, there's really a, a need for uh, flexibility and for arrangements that allow people to move in and out of the workforce to reduce work hours, um, and sometimes in ways that are less predictable than children. Um, in some ways, it is it is more challenging to think about. Okay, so those are those. Those two demographic shifts create the challenge. And so I'm going to talk about uh, the four different types of work family uh, policies, paid family leave, other types of paid leave, workplace flexibility, and child care. Um, and I'm just going to sit, flag at the beginning, at the outset, that these issues are just particularly acute for low-income families. They're less likely to be covered where there are employer supports. They're less likely to have access. And they're less likely to have private resources that enable them to purchase care. So anything I say about families and the need for work family policies applies in particular to low-income families. And the reason I'm talking about public policies is that employers actually have made some changes, but they haven't made enough and they can't make enough. And particularly if you think about this skew of policies towards higher income workers, more professional workers. It's hard to get employers to implement these policies, period, but especially for low-paid workers. So the more we rely on, on private policies, the more they're going to tend to be skewed towards the higher income, more professional workers. Um, so it's yet another reason for a public policy response. Okay, uh, parental leave. Um, you all may know that we're exceptional in not having paid parental leave. Uh, we're now the only advanced industrialized country that doesn't have paid parental leave. Australia, uh, a year or two ago, implemented paid parental leave. Um, the FMLA, which celebrated its 20th anniversary this year, Family and Medical Leave Act, provides 12 weeks of unpaid leave to qualifying workers. Uh, that's only about half of the private sector workforce. But again, low income or less professional workers are less likely to be covered. Uh, so these are slides from one of the earlier, uh, this slide is from one of the earlier reports. Um, we've done three now surveys of employers and employees about their eligibility for family leave coverage, but it really hasn't changed in terms of the skewing towards more professional workers. So um, the groups that are most likely to be covered and eligible for FMLA are folks with college education or graduate school education or some college. But if you look at the folks with less than high school, fewer than half are covered and eligible. Um, there is some movement now on state parental leave provisions. So this is an exciting thing. Uh, 20 years after uh, the passage of the FMLA, um, there is actually some movement on the state level. So for a long time, five states have had what are called TDIs, Temporary Disability Insurance Programs. These things date back in the 40s, 50s. Uh, these are publicly uh, funded and publicly managed disability insurance programs. So if you uh, have a temporary disability that requires you to be absent from work, you can claim insurance from TDI if you're <laughs> in one of these five states. And um, if you are pregnant that or recovering from childbirth, that qualifies as a disability. So through TDI, um, some women have access to paid maternity leave if they live in those five states. Um, 
But four states more recently, uh, California in 2004 um, it was the first. Rhode Island coming into effect in January is the most recent. Now have paid parental leave laws. So this is a brand new thing on the horizon. Um, interestingly, three of the four, three of the states that have enacted paid parental leave laws are TDI states. So California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, those are all TDI states. The reason that matters is they have a TDI mechanism. There's a TDI office. There's a TDI fund. There are TDI managers. There's, T it, it, there's an apparatus yeah, in place. Uh, Washington State enacted paid parental leave shortly after California. It's never gone into effect because it doesn't have the funding and it doesn't have an apparatus. Um, so these TDI states have fallen into place. There are two more TDI states out there. New York, New York State is one where there's active pursuit of this legislation, and Hawaii is the fifth. Uh, so the best case scenario would be that all five of the TDI states get on board, uh, but then I think we'll be a little bit stalled. Yeah, I, I forgot to announce that you, I think you're open to it. Absolutely, yeah. Could yeah. you explain why, um, you know, what about the FMLA makes uh, lower educated workers less, why they have less So part-time work is definitely a part of it. Size of the employer. Size of the employer. So the main criterion is size of the employer. So you have to work for an employer that has 50 or more employees. You have to have been there for a year. You have to work a certain number of hours. Okay. So a lot of it is size of employer. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, we tend to think in, in this country when we talk about paid maternity leave or paid parental leave that we're talking about employers paying people's salary while they're out, and then immediately employers' hackles kind of rise when they hear that. The model in the rest of the world and the model with these TDI programs is that it's paid through a publicly funded insurance pool. And actually in all of these states, it's funded through employee contributions. So every employee in the state pays a little bit, you know, sort of pennies a week in payroll tax, and that goes into a dedicated fund, a family leave insurance fund. And then when you need to draw down on it, when you have a new birth or when you adopt a child or when you take in a foster child, you have a period of, of bonding uh, that you're entitled to through these family leave insurance. It's not income dependent. It pays up a certain percent of wages, 55% of wages or 65%, depending on the state, up to a cap. And they're short. So California is six weeks. New Jersey is six weeks. Uh, Rhode Island is only going to be four weeks. But Rhode Island comes with job protection. So, and the, the good things about these state paid family leave laws is that unlike the FMLA, all workers are eligible. So FMLA only covers about half of workers. Um, workers who give birth are actually less likely than others to qualify because they haven't been on the job often that long or they, maybe they're working part time. Uh, but these paid family leave laws cover all the workers uh, with very short you know, requirements in terms of service on the job. So it's, uh, but none of them provide uh, job protection except for Rhode Island. So Rhode Island, you can take four weeks of paid leave if you're a new dad or a new mom or adoptive or birth, either way. Um, you can take the four weeks of leave. It'll be paid. It'll be job protected. One of my questions is about the TDIs. I know that Rhode Island, when they did the parental leave law, 
they were very strategic about creating, a, as Bill said, a, an omnibus piece of legislation that included a, a number of different mechanisms. Yes. Didn't go to any usual suspects and did a really good job of having this not seem like something for women. Yes. Often makes it yes. TDIs seem to be the uh, such a strong cornerstone because it wasn't gendered. No. Right. Yes. Yes. Was for everyone. And yes. It ends up that women can come along. Yes. And therefore, we don't have all the issues that arise in terms of getting legislation for women. Yes. When was the last time any state created the TDI? They're all incredibly old, correct? They're all incredibly old, and I think there's kind of a remarkable coincidence. So, so the TDI programs didn't used to cover pregnancy or maternity as a disability, and there was a Supreme Court decision that they, they had to cover it as a form of disability. After that, there were no further TDI laws passed. So I, I think there may have been a sense that if you then pass a TDI law, you're opening the floodgates. Now, now, the floodgates, I mean, most women these days have how many children, right? One or two? So the floodgates, in terms, you know, most men have one or two. So it's not an enormous floodgate in terms of, it's not like elder care or, you know, care for a sick child where people really could be using leave on a regular basis for quite some time, for many years, right? So it, it doesn't seem like a floodgate, but I think at the time it, it seemed like it to the states. Wow, without a TDI. <laughs> wow. So uh, that's what they called maternity leave in 1992 when you had a daughter. And then when the Family Medical Leave Act came around, you were entitled to take six weeks off without pay. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, six weeks off without pay versus 15. So I'm, the question I'm asking, actually, is whether or not any state, I know Massachusetts provided it. So if it's not included in your group of states, is it possible that some states would treat it? That's that's the first I've heard of, of uh, some other state disability provisions. So the answer is I don't know. That's a it's a good question. Um, so just to come back to the TDI piece. So in these states that have TDIs and then they have paid family leave laws, you can take your TDI leave if you're giving birth. If you're a mom giving birth, you can still take your TDI leave for six or eight weeks, say for a usual delivery, and then you can take your paid family leave on top of it. So in California, you can have six or eight weeks of your TDI disability leave, and then you can have another six weeks of your paid family leave. And the work that I've done on California suggests that women are taking about three weeks longer now because of the passage of paid family leave. And disproportionately, the increase is for the low-income, disadvantaged women who were least likely to be covered or taking leave previously. So, it, so that's great. That's great. It's closing some of the gaps. Um, so we're, you know, we're excited about these state laws, but, you know, in comparison to other countries, so, you know, every time I look at other countries, uh, the percentage of uh, the, the weeks of leave that they provide just go up, you know, at, have gone up. So the last time I reviewed this, I think they were providing about nine months of paid leave on average. I think the average now is probably more like 12 months of paid leave. 
So, um, but you know, you talk about this in Congress, and people just roll their eyes. So we're we're so we're just we're so far away from this in this country. But I, I do feel obligated to mention it that the stand, the norm in other countries. So I always like to talk about Canada, our neighbor to the north, recently extended their period of paid parental leave from six months to twelve months, and they do that through the unemployment insurance system. Um, and there's lots of evidence about the health benefits for kids and moms of being having the choice to stay home. doesn't mean everybody should stay home for six months or a year, but having the choice, the flexibility is, is a you know, great gift. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in Sweden and the Sweden is born in two days. Yes. Uh, but I was wondering, what do the gender gap look like for the four states? Like, like you have state parenting. How many days that's, you know, I don't actually know, um, I don't know, I know that men are taking some of the, the paid leave, they're taking a little bit less than the women, but that's actually a good question. Yeah. Um, in Canada, you can have parental leave, and, and so you, if you, the woman takes either the full uh, year or she can share it with her partner. Yeah. It's, it's here it's an individual worker entitlement so the father if you're in California the father can take six weeks of the fa paid family leave and the mother can take six weeks of paid family leave do you see what I mean it's not a child entitlement um, yeah so it's an individual worker entitlement um, okay other t so let's talk then about other types of paid leave um, so in addition to parental leave, there is paid sick leave, there is vacation leave, and this is another area where we differ from other countries. We're much less likely to provide this. Um, the system we have is that employers can voluntarily provide paid sick leave or paid vacation leave, and again, we find low-income workers less likely to be covered. So this chart just shows the percent of workers who have no paid leave at all, no paid leave of any kind, no paid personal time, vacation time, sick leave, you know, you, holiday time, whatever you call it, um, something up to one week or uh, more than one week. And for the folks who are below the poverty line, you know, more than half, 54%, have, these are people who are working. They have a job, but they have no paid leave entitlement. And even the folks who are in, in the next category, the near poor, 100 to 200% of the poverty line, 39%, so nearly 40%, have no paid leave whatsoever. So somebody gets sick, uh, there's a death in the family, uh, someone has a birth, they lose their pay. The, the, the best case scenario is they take the time off, they lose their pay. The worst case scenario is they lose the job because they're taking leave you know, without permission. Um, so this is another area that's very active at the moment. There are campaigns all around the country. Uh, there's a paid sick leave movement and um, this seems to have some traction. So, you know, it started in San Francisco, and you may say, okay, well, San Francisco, they pass a lot of things. But um, <laughs> Milwaukee, uh, Portland, Oregon, and most recently New York City um, has agreed. Uh, this was very contested in the city council, so I don't know how closely all of you here followed uh, the recent mayoral campaign in New York City. But uh, Christine Quinn, who was the head of the city council, and was kind of the anointed successor to Mayor Bloomberg, uh, one of the things that she fell down on was on paid sick leave. So the city council was prepared to pass it. Uh, she didn't like it. 
And so she used her power as chair of the city council to block, to, to not schedule a vote. So it's sort of parliamentary tactics. And uh, I think it was Gloria Steinem who said, I'm not endorsing her for mayor unless she lets the, this thing come to a vote. And so she caved, she let it come to a vote, and it was enacted. But the damage was done. Um, you know, people like me who don't follow New York City politics all that closely, all I knew was that Christine Quinn had been holding up paid sick leave, which a majority of the city council was ready to enact. And, um, you know, she lost my vote on that and probably lost a lot of other votes. Um, and she lost the election. Uh, so, but New York, New York City now, because she caved in, has uh, paid sick leave legislation. Connecticut just enacted paid sick leave. That, that's the first state. Uh, so these are laws that say, in this case, this is the employer. This is a law that says employers must provide. If they're going to operate in our state, they must provide all employees a minimum amount of paid sick leave. And, you know, say it's five days or three days. Sometimes it's prorated based on the number of hours that you work and the length of time you've been working. But it sets a sort of minimum standard. Um, in other countries, this is through national sickness funds, sort of the way that you have un national unemployment insurance funds or disability funds. There are sickness funds, so everybody pays in. And when you're on sick leave, you claim from the public fund. But we don't ha because we don't have that mechanism here, we don't have the apparatus this, this, in this case, is an employer mandate. And so you can, you can understand where the opposition comes from on this. Um, and D.C., District of Columbia, has enacted paid sick leave. Oh. Um, the third area that gets a lot of attention is flexible working hours. There's been a big campaign for workplace flexibility over the last 20 years. And this is one that really affects both sides of the equation, both the child care and the elder care side of the equation. Um, we made a lot of progress in terms of something like flex time back in the 1990s. So you saw the share of workers with flex time rising from 29% to 45% in those five years. But it's been flat ever since. I looked at the most recent nationally representative survey, the American <coughs> workforce, and the share who have access to flex time uh, is still 45%. And again, low-income workers are less likely to have access. Um, so we contrast that with uh, the European Union has a mandate, actually, as part of its social charter, that all countries have to have some kind of workplace flexibility. And they've encouraged all the member states in Europe to have something that they call the right to request. And so the UK has implemented the right to request uh, in line with this European, uh, I don't know if it's a mandate, but it's a pretty strong nudge. And the right to request is simply, uh, you have the right to request part-time or flexible hours, and you have the right to have that request reasonably considered. It's not a mandate on employers. They don't have to provide part-time or flexible hours. You just have the right to make the request. So when the UK implemented this, a million workers came out of the woodwork and said, could I have the right? <laughs> Can I have flexible hours? So clearly there was just this huge pent-up demand um, among, you know, women and men to work more flexibly or work part-time. And I think 90% of the requests were granted right off the bat, and another 5% were granted after some kind of arbitration. And the Conservative Party, which is now in office, is now extending this to families with older children. The, the main complaint that employers had was they thought it was inequitable 
that there should be this right if you had young children, but not if you had older children or other family responsibilities. And they were uncomfortable having to say to employees, this one gets it, but this one doesn't. It just didn't seem right to them. That was really the main complaint from employers. So this, this just feels like a real win-win, right? It, employers went along, employees, there was pent-up demand. Yes. And I was wondering if with your data about the percentages, because I know here, yeah. in some point, what, what they said that are the historian mechanisms, you know, basically for there's not reason, there's kind of not and so on. And, but I just, I know that besides, um, besides the tonal barriers, I know that if you are in a low income job, yeah. you're less Mm -hmm. But they're more likely to be resented yeah. because it's assumed they're getting away with something. Yeah. And so I know that even women in higher paid jobs or <coughs> job security, they, they get sort of the targets of tremendous resentment. Um, sometimes by, yeah. like even upper management says we can do this, yeah. but then the middle manager has to deal with people who don't have much time with anyone who do. So I just wonder if you could talk about some of the other Yeah, and I think I, no, I think you're absolutely right, and I think it's a moving target because if you ask younger men now what's the most important attribute of the job that they're looking for, what they're looking for from employers, they talk about workplace flexibility as much as the women do. So, uh, and men are now using benefits more than they used to. Uh, so, you know, women as they've moved into the labor force have cut back their time in childcare, and men have increased it. So their men are nowhere near putting in as many hours on average as women, but the gap is actually closing in hours between women and men. Um, you know, it used to be if you saw a football player miss a big game because his wife had just had a baby and he was not going to, there'd be some talk about, you know, he's letting down the team. Now I think it would be a scandal if a football player didn't take off when his wife had the baby, right? We would all think the guy was a bum. So I, I just think, I think the norms are, are changing, uh, but, and it, it also depends on whether it's professional or low income. I think in professional settings, you hear actually a lot of men saying, I'm going to take off early because I'm going to cook dinner for my family, or I'm going to take my daughter to soccer. And uh, you actually, in some instances, see more men saying that now than women, right? Women still will say, I've got to get the car fixed, or... Um, something that's not family related because they don't want to evoke that stereotype. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's changing slowly. And it, it's tough because you can have all the policies in the world, but a lot of it comes down to what the immediate supervisor and immediate manager is implementing and how they're viewing their employees and the messages they're sending. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And so even now, uh, women are allotted 42 days of leave after having a baby, and men are allotted 10. Uh, and um, that's in the military. Interesting. Um, yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, and we hardly even talk about paternity leave here. Whereas, you know, I was emphasizing that other countries have, you know, 10 months or a year of paid parental leave, but a lot of countries have something specifically called paternity leave, which we don't talk about so much here. Although, again, um, you know, the FMLA 
it, it requires family leave, not maternity leave or paternity leave. And the biggest gains in leave were actually among men. Because not many firms, you know, like the military, had paternity leave. And to come into compliance with FMLA, they had to introduce something called family leave, and it had to cover men as well as women. So the biggest sea change, actually, was for men. And, uh, and nowadays, I mean, I was stunned. Uh, when I first looked at this, you know, nationally representative data, the percent of men who take some leave after the birth of a baby in the United States, 90%. Now, okay, admittedly, they only take about five days or ten days, but 90% of guys take at least some leave. I was stunned. That was just not at all what I would have expected. Um, so, that, But they don't call it, in those days, they weren't calling it paternity leave, right? They called it sick leave or they were helping their wife out or, mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? They took vacation time. And people sometimes call those daddy quotas or daddy months. And if the fam if the dad doesn't take it up, it's lost to the family. Exactly. So someone was saying earlier that if you have these systems where there's leave entitlement for the family, then you could have a situation where the mom took all of it and the dad would take zero. And this avoids that by having some months reserved for the dad. Because we have individual worker entitlements here, it doesn't that doesn't come up for us. So the dad's working for one company or he's working for the military, he gets his paternity leave there, the mom gets her leave at her company, and so they're not, you couldn't have a situation where she took all the leave. Um, so we're kind of. So um, there is a financial burden, um, but there's also the time burden. So as, as elderly uh, relatives get older, they need more time and care. And, you know, some affluent families are able to manage that by purchasing care. So you can purchase home health care. You can purchase even a care manager who will look out for your elderly relative. But, in the, but even then, you still need time. There's caring time. There's time when they're in the hospital. You have to be going back and forth, you know, end of life. So it's really the time demands. And, um, and it's both, it's elderly relatives, meaning, you know, parents and in-laws, but also spouses and partners, and also own Ill illness. So as people are working longer, um, people have their own illnesses to attend to as well. No, no, no. What do you attribute the plateauing of the flex um, policies in 1997 and how it's been Well, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, I guess the positive spin on that would be that that's the share who have traditional flex time. And, um, you know, traditional flex time is that you change your working hours once and for all, and then you're stuck with them. So, okay, you don't have to work 9 to 5, you could work 8 to 4, or you could work 10 to 6, 
that's what traditional flex time looks like. Or there's a compressed work week, so you work four days, but you do that, you commit to it, and that's it. And a lot of the demand for flexibility is more day-to-day -day flexibility. The kind of flexibility that we enjoy as academics, you know, if I want to, I want to come to Cambridge for a day, I can do that. Or, you know, if I want to roll into work late, I can do that. Or I can, you know, I have, I have more control over my working schedule than most regular workers do. So it's that kind of day-to-day -day flexibility. And there has been a big increase. The, the, the upside is there has been a big increase in day-to-day -day flexibility. Uh, so I think some of it is just sort of changing our understanding of what, what we mean by flexibility. So that maybe is a little bit too pessimistic, that, um, that statistic. Um, okay, and then on childcare, uh, this is another place where we're exceptional. We rely primarily on the private market. Um, so we do have some public subsidies. Uh, you know, we have kind of more going on with childcare than we do with parental leave and paid leave in terms of public support. So middle-income families can claim tax credits if they're working. Uh, Low-income families might get childcare subsidies or might get Head Start, um, although subsidies reach only about 30% of eligible families, even though they've been expanded greatly uh, since welfare reform. And Head Start, again, is actually at a pretty high level now in terms of funding, but it only reaches about half of eligible threes and fours. Um, employers' involvement in childcare is just absolutely minimal. Um, even the workers who have the most childcare help, white-collar workers, fewer than 20% have any help. Full-time workers, about 15% have any help. This has been absolutely flat over time. As long back as we have statistics um, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, employer assistance with child care has not budged. And when I say employer assistance with child care, that's mainly informa information and referral. Mm -hmm. So this is a phone number you can call. It's a child care office. I, I don't mean to downplay how important that is. You know, having seen Columbia, my university, go from having no work-life programs to now having work-life programs, and they have an office of child care assistance. You know, boy, I could have used it when I moved there 20 years ago, and I see the new faculty now, and there's an office that helps them with child care advice and school advice. You know, information is really helpful, but it's, it, employers are not putting money into this. Uh, that's not happening. Can you explain the, uh, the barriers to access to Head Start in, in your previous slide? Yeah, it's, it's funding. Um, it Head Start's not an entitlement. Child care subsidies are not an entitlement. So, you know, other programs like food stamps, as if more, there are more people eligible, more money is expended. There's no caps on how many people can be served. But things so like is there WIC a state and level variation, or where, where do, where this is, is federal. There? Yeah, it's federal. So where? Yeah. So where? But is there any? I'm guessing there's sort of systematic differentials, like would poorer families in cities be more likely to have access, or is it not like that? It's just literally where. How, how do you get it? You have to apply. Is it? I mean, income eligible. Yeah. Income eligible. No, but she's saying only 30% of eligible yeah. families. So I'm assuming only 30% of income eligible. So who, who are those people who get access to it? It's not lottery? Or so the child care subsidies, you turn up and you apply and your name goes on a waiting list because all okay. the subsidies have been allocated. List. And then um, somebody loses their subsidy because they've lost their job, so they lose their child care subsidy. So then you you get that subsidy until you lose your job and then you lose the subsidy. So there's a lot of churn. Uh, I, mean, I was just curious. I just didn't know what was, you know, what the who determined that thirty that thirty percent of eligibility. Yeah, in Head Start, I mean, Head Start's supposed to serve 
the most needy among the eligible. So they're supposed to serve, right, to the extent that they can, they're supposed to serve the most needy among, but they don't have enough funds to serve everybody. They serve four year olds first. And they'll serve fours first. Yes. Which is yep. kind of also a part of the serving for you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so where we go from here, um, let me just give you a sense of uh, what's pending, what, what the next steps are in these different policy areas. So parental leave, as I said, that's, you know, paid parental leave has passed in three TDI states plus one other. It's pending in several others. Uh, there will be legislation filed in Congress this fall for a national paid family leave program. Um, yeah. So, and it's going to be a long haul. You know, the FMLA, uh, there's a wonderful book, I think it's called Conflict and Compromise, about the passage of the FMLA. Uh, that took quite some time. This is going to be a long haul. But we'll get there. So uh, Heather Boucher, who's at the Center for American Progress, has really made this her issue and she's worked very hard to develop a proposal. So this is going to be uh, funded through something that looks like Social Security, but it's going to be a separate freestanding fund within the Social Security system. So I've been stressing the idea that you need a mechanism, you need an apparatus. That mechanism apparatus is going to be something within Social Security. So it's not going to touch the Social Security Trust Fund. It's going to be a different little fund within Social Security. Uh, it's going to be um, People are going to pay through payroll taxes a few pennies a week, sort of like they do in California or New Jersey or Rhode Island. The money's going to go in a big pool, and when you have a qualifying event, so you have a birth, male, female, um, and interestingly, they're making this family leave. So this is going to be not just paid parental leave, but this is going to be paid family leave. So all the things that you can take leave for under the FMLA, those will qualify. and. I actually don't recall how many weeks it is in their starting proposal. Say it's like six weeks, something like that. I don't think it's 12 weeks. Maybe it is. Um, and it'll be paid as a portion of wages up to a certain cap. Um, so basically it's taking the things that you can take under FMLA and you'll be able to get paid leave. And so I, I think uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, my senator from New York, is one of the sponsors. Rosa DeLauro is going to sponsor in the House. Um, so this is on the horizon. That's very exciting. Um, other paid leave, uh, there's legislation pending in several states and cities. I was saying there's a, pay, a sick leave campaign. Yeah. So the approach of the entitlement, Each parent has an entitlement for whatever it is, if it's six weeks. Each parent has an entitlement for six weeks. So if you're two parents, it's, again, remember, we have an individual entitlement model. It's not like in Europe where the entitlement is around the child. My six weeks can't be transferred to the other parent. No. I've earned them myself, and I can take six weeks, and my partner can take six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Twelve months, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 
So what we know, um, what we know from cross-national studies are that when countries, holding const country constant and holding the year constant, when countries extend their period of paid parental leave, infant mortality goes down. So if you think about what's going on, it's, and it's early infant mortality. It's mortality in the first weeks and months. Um, parents better able to monitor their children, things like monitoring sleep position, things like that. Uh, better able to take their children to the doctors when things start looking, you know, a little borderline. Um, we know that the longer you have paid leave, the more likely you are to breastfeed, the more likely you are to take children to the doctor for their checkups, the more likely kids are to have their vaccinations, all their immunizations. So I think even six weeks at the start of life, I, think, I do think that would make a difference, um, let alone the sort of bonding effects. Um, I think it would make a difference, and arguably more so than another six weeks or eight weeks kind of after a year. Do you, even I have trouble making the case for two years of paid, you know, I, even 12 months is a lot. Um, so I don't know. I think if we could get, and if we could get to three months, if we get to 12 weeks, that would be better than six. But we have women going back, you know, a lot sooner than, the modal return is eight to 12 weeks. So that means people, quite a few people are returning earlier than that. Um, and then the six weeks also can be used for other, other situations. It can be used for your own health condition, if your child has a health condition. You know, say your child has a serious illness or your child has a disability and you need some days off work. Six weeks actually goes kind of a long way. Or you have an elderly relative who suddenly has a fall or has a crisis, you need to fly to another city to be with them. Again, you know, I don't know, six weeks it's better than nothing, right? Well, I mean, the FMLA is gender neutral. So around new births, this is uh, leave to care for a newborn or a newly adopted child or a new foster child. So it's provided to men as well as women. And around elder care, a lot of the caregiving is being done by men. You know, our stereotype is that it's the daughters and daughters-in-laws. A lot of the caregiving is done by men. Men do different kinds of care for their elder relatives. They're more likely to go over and do the yard work and you know, do handyman stuff around the house. Uh, they do grocery shopping. They do transportation. Um, men are reporting substantial amounts of care for elderly relatives. They don't do as many hours as women, but they're doing substantial. It's, not, it's, not, it's definitely not zero men and 100% you know, women. But you, you're just, you don't agree. <laughs> no, the person sitting next to you. Well, I, mean, I, was just, I was just thinking, if, as with child care, um, the fact that men are doing more than they used to do, it's still what um, the statistics I've seen that brings them up somewhere near to about 30%. Yeah. And what they do are things like mowing the lawn. That's what, yeah.
None. So the FMLA was recently amended to cover caring for someone who returns from the military. So paid, the paid family leave proposal just provides paid leave for things that are covered under the FMLA. So yes, that would be included. That, I think that was the most recent amendment. The, the FMLA has been quietly amended over the years. And that was a, one of the easiest ones to get through because there's so much concern about people returning uh, with injuries or disabilities. So that, yeah, I think that's the most recent FM, FMLA amendment. It's also another reason to have a lot more leave. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I could be, it, I'm, I, I could be wrong. It could be 12 weeks. I don't want to, it probably is 12 weeks, and it's, that's the negotiating point. I, that would make sense to me, because FMLA provides 12 weeks, so it probably is 12. But what will come out when it's finally enacted, that's, you know, not clear. Yes, I think that's right, and um, and I think that's where some of this interest in piggybacking men's leave on top of women's leave comes from, because um, the old notion is that the man is taking a week or two off to help out his wife with the baby. That's the old stereotype, and um, the the newer model is that both of them are taking care of the baby, maybe together or maybe sort of tag teaming. Um, and that is part of the philosophy of paternity leave, is that it gets the man in there early, especially if you think about a first birth. Neither parent knows what they're doing. So <laughs> if, if, only the, if only the mom is home, she becomes the expert. Like, well, here, help me bathe the baby, help me do. No, seriously, neither of you knows what you're doing. But if both of you are home muddling through, then he becomes, maybe he's actually better at calming the baby or, you know, so uh, that is part of the idea of getting men home early. And there's evidence that the men who take paternity leave in our home are more involved nine months later or a year later because they haven't been crowded out that way. Um, yeah, what the paid leave law will that's being filed, how that will relate to FMLA and whether it'll cover more workers, whether it'll have job protection, those are things to be negotiated, yeah. 
where I worked by Jamie, like I had actually pretty good policies, but no one took advantage of them because of the social pressures. I mean, yes. both men and women. Yes. So do you see, from your experience in talking to me, or do you see the legislation again pushing the social pressures or like where is, because there's still a lot of de facto pressure yes. there. And I yeah. just, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just like curious of your thoughts around Oh, that. yeah, no, and, I. And I work with the marginalized community and, and the people I work in the community have the same pressure. So like both low yeah. income Well, I was saying before, you know, there's been a 20-year campaign around workplace flexibility, and they're now out at the grassroots. They're in communities now working with individual employers because they've realized that this is not about policies from the top down. This is about making it work for teams of workers and their employers. So they have this campaign called Win Work Works, and they have all these employers signed up to it. And it's all about work teams, and so they go in and the team of workers gets together and says, well, how could we do the job better and could we do it better if we worked more flexibly? And it's meant to work for employers and employees. Um, and they're now, you know, that's the Families and Work Institute, it's the Sloan Foundation, and they're now talking about what's the next phase of that campaign. And, you know, when I hear them talk about it, it sounds to me like they're talking about new ways of working. You know, employers are under tremendous pressure. They're cutting back, if anything, on paid leave workers are more contingent than ever so nobody's in a very good place at the moment neither employers or employees so what are the new ways of working that are going to you know get us to a better equilibrium uh, and that was also the thrust of the white house summit that was held in 2010 that was all about employer initiatives it was all about what can be done in workplaces to make workplaces more flexible um, not what can be done through public policy. Now that was partly for, you know, partly. It was mainly for political reasons because it wasn't a moment when new legislation was going to go through Congress. But it's also because whatever policies you have, they have to be implemented in the firms. Um, on child care, as Mary Jo was saying, there's a big move towards universal pre-K. Uh, so that is, um, that is another train that's leaving the station. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, we've heard at the federal level the president talk about universal pre-K. Um, you know, the states were well on their way. Uh, the current cohort of kindergartners, something like a third of them, have been in universal pre-K. The states get it. The states understand they need to get these kids in earlier. It's the best way to close achievement gaps. Uh, the challenge really has been the funding. And the states were expanding at a very rapid pace, and then they ran into the recession and sort of came to a screeching halt, you know, understandably, given what happened to state revenues. Uh, but that's a train that's, that's definitely leaving the station. And what goes alongside it is the idea of quality improvements in child care. Yeah. So my question to you is, for to 
I mean, as part of the Win Work Works campaign, the Workplace Flexibility campaign, um, they supported a group that was called Corporate Voices for Working Families. I'm sure you've come across them. And they tried to mobilize the business community. They're still in, in effect. Um, to Especially businesses that employ low-wage workers. So Marriott was a big player in, in that organization. And they were trying to get businesses to provide more socially responsible benefits, but also to help them connect their workers to public benefits that they might not have been aware of, you know, things like the EITC or things like child care subsidies. Um, I mean, I have to say the best example I've come across is in the Netherlands, uh, where employers pay a tax, and that goes towards the cost of child care subsidies. And they just take that for granted, because the child care enables people to come to work. And so why would you have employers pay for on-site child care or particular child care slots? It's just much more efficient to have them pay a tax and the revenue support subsidies for everyone. Um, but, you know, when I heard that presented, you know, that we're, this is an edited volume on child care policies in different countries, and all of us just stopped in our tracks and said, you know, what do you mean that they're taxing employers? And that's just taken for granted there. But um, I don't, we don't have anything like that here at the moment. Um, I think it's fair to say. Um, so these are the questions um, that I'm kind of grappling with at the moment <laughs> and where I would love your thoughts. Because um, I've been stressing throughout, we're so different. We're such an outlier. We're the only country that doesn't have paid parental leave. We're about the only advanced peer country that doesn't have universal preschool. All the other OECD countries bring their kids into preschool publicly funded the year or two before school entry. We're the only one that doesn't get that. Um, so what is it about? And there is this pretty well-developed literature about U.S. exceptionalism, because this is not the only policy area where we're exceptional. It's people talk, you know, we have a residual welfare state. This is familiar. You know, we don't have a labor party that didn't advocate for these things. There's employer resistance to mandates because we have this odd system where when we think of these benefits, the first thing we think of is we're asking employers to do it. And we, you know, employers don't like mandates. They don't like being told what to do. But I think we're even further behind in work family than we are in other policy domains. So if that's the case, it can't just be the usual suspects, U.S. You know, exceptionalism. Is there something more about work family that we're even more behind? So I don't know. Do we have more traditional attitudes about women's roles? These things have been seen as women's women's, you know, roles, and we're worried about women going to work. I don't know. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the UK. They have more traditional attitudes towards women's roles than we do. Germany has some pretty traditional attitudes about women's roles. They have very lengthy maternity leave because they want to keep women 
I'm sorry, but my impression is that they like to keep women home <laughs> after birth for an extended period of time. They have these laws that forbid you from going to work in, right after you've had a baby, the mother protection laws. Um, so I don't think it's traditional attitudes. We don't have this pronatalist push that some, you know, countries like France have generous parental leave, generous child care because they want to induce more births we don't have a movement in this country to induce more births. I mean, we sort of tend to think the opposite. So maybe that is a factor. I think there has been something in the feminist movement here. Uh, the feminist movement here has been really good at getting equal pay, equal rights. Um, we had e equal rights laws before many other countries, but the feminist movement mostly, not everybody, but was pretty silent about things involving children and family responsibilities. They really didn't want to feed into the stereotype that when you see a woman, she's a mother. She's got kids at home. She needs special treatment. The, the majority feminist view here has been just give us an equal shot with men and we will do equally as well and ha has been to not mention the family issues. That maybe is a generalization, but... Um, or maybe we fail to frame the issue more broadly. You know, we frame these issues as women's issues. They're about children. They're not really. I mean, many of the questions today have been about what about the men? What about the men? What about the elders? What about other dependents, people returning from the military, you know, kids with special health care needs, your own illness, your partner's illness? So, but I don't, I'd love to hear your thoughts. for how we feel as Americans and American policymakers don't line up. So I think that one of the issues is it's very lovely to pass a, any type of rights bill, but that's usually free. There's not an economic allocation that has to be married to that. And then what happens, if you think about how we treat children, it's not so different than how we treat elders. More than 50% of our elderly population in the United States currently lives in poverty. So when it comes to a situation where we need to pay for it, we're in a very funny bind. The other thing that happens is for elections in the United States, every candidate has to raise money to run. One of the key mechanisms from which they raise money is through business networks, if not business directly, depending on how you want to think about independent expenditures and so forth. So that when it all coalesces together, we don't have political will in the United States to put through the difficult economic scenario which would be required to then shift it, which makes us totally different by mechanism than all of our European peers. So I think it's how these pieces line up together that create this really robust set of challenges because it's not that people need to philosophically buy in. They have to prioritize it in terms of the expenditure piece. And we do pretty well, I think, as a women's community, getting people to philosophically all nod. But we're never going to get this through as a women's issue. It, it, at least, I shouldn't say never. <laughs> we are not currently going to get it through even <coughs> with the really good work um, you know, of those who, who we work with and others to, to do all this, because it's, 
it's how does the economics work out not even just employers buying in, but it's a much larger structural issue in my view. One of the other differences that, um, is in the United States, employers provide health insurance, and as we see, the cost of that is, is growing uh, astronomically. So they're really, uh, even if they wanted to do some of these other things, I think they're stuck because already the, the piece of their pie that they're able to give to their employees is being sucked up. So I think that's a fundamental difference. You know, if we had um, insurance that wasn't provided through health care employers, then I think the conversations could be had around what other kinds of benefits might employers be able to provide to their workers. I think it's a barrier in both ways. One, because employers are spending so much on health insurance that they're squeezed spending on anything else, but also because we default to, when we talk about work family supports, we think we're asking for that from employers. Whereas this, you know, there are other sectors that could be providing the supports, but we immediately think we're talking about employers paying when somebody's off, you know, caring for their elder relative, or and you know, the approach of something like paid family leave is that someone other than the, you know, we all pay for it through a public insurance mechanism. Yeah. Um, I think there's an ex a very strong cultural challenge, a media challenge that's a little bit of a subset but slightly different than what you said, which is not just American exceptionalism but American individualism. Yeah. And um, the whole issue, I think, regardless of how we talk about it or, or you know, describe the values, it's still there's something wrong with you individually if you can't figure this out. And I think that the whole Sheryl Sandberg lean in issue is, you know, has some ramifications for that, which is it's all about, you know, you as an individual, right? Um, and it's the same reason we blame people who are poor. It's their fault. And right. so if you can't figure out this family problem, it's your fault. And we see, you know, some role models of people who are able to figure it out or are able to afford it or are able to and why can't everybody be like that? and other wealthy nations is our degree of inequality, right? And so yes. the degree of inequality means that the people in power have created these provisions for themselves. They've eliminated their own personal incentive, and as Victoria alluded to, there's no political incentive. So everyone who experiences the need can't do anything about it. representational inequality, if we look at the charts that you uh, presented at the beginning talking about variations in work-family policy eligibility, one notices obviously that coverage tracks with income broadly. Mm -hmm. And to look at then political participation and political clout among the uncovered uh, low-income individuals particularly, if you look at the political participation, political voice as well as the and obviously one could look at cultural undercurrents there. But, um, one of the things that always comes to mind in terms of these policies is choice. You can buy your way out uh, to a degree of our income. And to me, that cuts two ways, Fra framing effects on how, the, how these policies are packaged. Are these policies for low-income people who, let's face it, don't have much of a voice, uh, voice in politics? And then also, um, on a related economic note, um, they, whether you presented rather um, federal, state, local landscapes for these policies. And I didn't work with it, but in Pennsylvania there was a push toward paid um, employee leave. And I worked with an organization that, 
that did some of the advocacy around that. And one of the things that spurred resistance to it was economic competitiveness, the notion that these policies are going to be expensive and therefore drive uh, employers away and increase the cost of doing business in the state. So I wonder if some of the sources of opposition aren't specific to It was taking, meant I had to do more work. 
Um, so me, even as a female, I was perpetuating those cycles. And I would also say that, you know, um, there's no, I would say, no leadership within the business community of men or women that are putting this up as a priority. You know, you mentioned Cheryl Sandberg, Anne-Marie Slaughter, all of the women that we see that are within the business community, certainly not no men, no one is talking about this within that community and saying, this is an issue that our, we need to reframe, that you know, we need to talk about the positive benefits to our companies, not just the cost. The only thing we talk about for women is how do we get women to these positions, and the only way to do that is work more, work harder, yeah. not take time off. versus employees, because that's how we've been framing it, that this is you know, a battle between employers and employees, and we have to get to, this is when, when work works better for both employers and employees, and so that's why you know, I'm now thinking about new ways of working that, that are gonna work better. So we've talked about changes in families, we've talked about public policies, and why we're in such an outlier, and what we might be able to do about it. You could see, this was the question that we all engaged with, and. It was so great having this conversation. Uh, it's so helpful for me um, because this is some, I do think it is time to start a movement and if there's gonna be a movement, it's gonna be all of you who are gonna be doing it, not me. So um, I, uh, I hope you go forth with energy and enthusiasm and when you're polled about what are the pressing issues that you're concerned about in the next election, Talk about elder care or child care. Yeah, see your baby's waving. Yes, we're family. Well, thank you so much. That's oh, very. Very uh, <laughs> a lot of thought. I hope you'll join us next week. Uh, Barrett Garitsen is uh, from the University of St. Gallen is going to be talking about interhousehold bargaining power in the context of HIV protection prevention, an application to married couples in rural Malawi. So I hope you'll join us for that. Not important.